Hi all, Sophia here with just a few quick announcements before we jump into this week's episode of Movie Struck. This episode has a content warning for gratuitous violence and explicit sex. If you are uncomfortable with either of those things, I would recommend perhaps giving this one a skip or listening ahead with caution. And on a less content warning-y note, uh, there is now a Patreon and Discord for Movie Struck. Links to both of those are in the show notes below, uh, and more will be described at the end in the outro, but just uh, before you go in, maybe give a little perusal down at those notes. Taking a glance, taking a little gander, good, great. Then without further ado, on to the main episode. Well, usually, actually, I recommend people that watch this movie not so much for... Uh, the, the kind of because there's a lot of symbolism in this mm-hmm. movie and like there's a lot of relation to history which I really really like yeah. but I mostly recommend people watch it for Lunga because <laughs> it's just that was yes. um when I watched this movie for the first time I was like that is my favorite character of all time <laughs> I love this dude holy crap like I don't know why he just strikes you very much as like I don't know he's very he's this kind of like youthful yeah yeah, he's well. He he enters with like a mohawk, um, mohawk mullet, which already starts off in. A, mm-hmm. I'm a sucker for a crazy haircut, so already I was all in. <laughs> mm-hmm. But he gets he gets the call for help, and people are like, you know, we're dying, mm-hmm. come to town. He takes a moment to change his outfit. <laughs> yes. Into... He gets dressed for the occasion. <laughs> right. <laughs> This waist high trousers tucked into military boots and his little like little jacket and the rings and like the gold jewelry just Hello and welcome to Movie Struck, a podcast about movies and the people who watch them. I'm your host, Sophia Ricciardi, and I am joined by a uh, TikToker and film experiencer extraordinaire. I've already, English is not working for me today, guys. I'm going to give you that heads up. Trashling, welcome to the show. <laughs> Hi. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> Thank you for graciously accepting my completely butchered introduction, but I'm very excited to have you on. And I'm very excited to talk about the movie that we watched today, which is why I'm going to start out by asking you the question I ask at the top of every episode. Why did we watch Baccarat? Baccarat? Baccarat. I think I've just butchered not only English, but also Portuguese in the span of about two minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I didn't actually prepare for this question. Um, (laughs) Baccarat is one of the, like, weirdest movies that I've ever watched. Mm -hmm. Um, And whenever I try to describe it to anyone, I'm like... It's a weird Western, there's sci-fi, there's the West, but it's also like anti-colonialism. It's set in the future, but it's about the past and there's like gangsters in it, sort of. Um, And the guy who always plays an evil German plays an evil (laughs) German in it. Gotta rep him. There's a lot going on. Mm -hmm. Gratuitous violence, um, anti-racism, racism, racism, uh, (laughs) everything. Yeah, it really is like a, you never really know where this movie's going to go. And it somehow it manages to make it all very cohesive, which is wildly impressive. Right? It just kind of fits in a way that's not supposed to work. Mm-hmm. But it does. It does. And it, it starts out by opening with just so, so many logos. There were so many production 
uh, company logos come into us as sort of this frantic static starts to build up and quickly levels into kind of jauntier folk music. I really like that this movie had credits in the front. It's just a very little thing that you don't see so much in a lot of uh, American movie releases, but it's a very classic Hollywood move and I get a little like nostalgia hit every time I see it. The whole world comes into view, literally, as we see Earth from space, a satellite floating by, and continuing in, we push into South America, specifically Brazil, landing on the planet Earth, which is where the Earth of it all comes into play. (laughs) Uh, A water truck chugs along the road uh, as a Chiron lets us know that it's a few years from now, so this is ambiguously kind of set in the future, um, and a lot of the technological elements in the movie will clue you into that as well, but we're setting that seed in here now. A woman is sleeping in the back of the truck, woken by it running over a coffin in the road. When she asks what they hit, the man driving simply tells her to look up ahead uh, where people are grabbing and buying coffins from a turned over truck, um, starting the large amount of coffins that will feature throughout this film. As they pass, they turn off the main road onto a side path uh, with a sign announcing that they are entering uh, Baccaro. The man asks his passenger what's with the lab coat she wears, and she explains that it's her sort of protection. Uh, It's her metaphorical coat of armor, so to speak. A tablet in the car advertises a wanted wanted person, Lunga, who now has a reward on their head, uh, remarks the man, though the woman is adamant that she will not turn them in, uh, and the man concurs. We've got this wanted figure. Our our protagonists uh, emerging from the vehicle as they arrive at um, an overlook, looking through their binoculars, which is a word that I had to pause the movie and think about for five minutes before I wrote down my notes because I kept thinking like periscope, which is incorrect. But, you know, we got there. I I mean, it's the same, same, same genre. Something about it just really threw me, um, not because it is used improperly in the movie, but because I have forgotten how to speak um, English correctly. <laughs> uh, they look over a dam built into the river, blocking up and kind of keeping all of the water secured, as dams are wont to do. Um, they kind of remark about the situation. No one can do anything about this blockage. Uh, Lunga tried to open it by force, but despite killing three people in the process, could not get the dam open and defeat those who were closing it off. Now they're in hiding and only Pakote knows where they are. Looking at the dam, a man walks into view of their binoculars as we go into sort of binocular scope vision uh, and fires off a warning shot, prompting them to leave their reconnaissance, reconnaissance moment. Oh, man. <laughs> the overlook? The overlook, yes. Thank you. <laughs> It's been a day. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. I mean, the, the movie's in Brazilian. It's completely <laughs> in Portuguese. Oh my Portuguese. <laughs> you know what? It's that's the vibe. It's, that's it's a important. reference to the movie. It is. <laughs> you're set. You're teeing up our listeners for you know a, a little bit of a a bit later on. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's important. Back on the road, the duo enters the town proper, proper the woman grabbing her suitcase and heading off. Uh, as she passes the hospital, she waves at an older woman sitting in there who promptly turns from her as she calls out hello. Uh, clearly not having whatever our lady is carrying. She cro- comes across to Damiano, who tells her to open up, putting a small pill in her mouth and watching her expression to see how she reacts. She simply starts to smile and gives him a kiss on the cheek. So whatever this was, was not wholly uh, unwanted. 
Arriving at a gathering point, she's greeted by another woman and her luggage passed into the home uh, by a large crowd that has gathered outside. Opening up the suitcase, there are medical supplies inside, explaining the care people took with passing the suitcase, which I really love the sequence where they do because they pass it overhead of the crowd like the suitcase is crowd surfing. Um, <laughs> just like a really striking mm-hmm. image. Yeah. Like a baby. <laughs> yes, exactly. Actually, you know what? Wait. Do you cross carry a lot of babies by like passing them overhead? I, it reminded me of the sequence from The Lion King oh. where it's like Simba <laughs> yes. gets lifted. Yeah, I don't okay. think he gets like passed, but you know, I'm, he's I'm up there. following you now. I was picturing like a real human world child. <laughs> like you, <laughs> you give birth and you go outside. I have a very large family. People would like to go to the hospital, and, like pa- just pass the kid hand over hand. <laughs> I think the nurses would take issue with that, but why not? Well, who knows? Maybe they're in the crowd, you know? Exactly. <laughs> it's all together. Just you pass it to the nurse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the process, as we all know. The uh, We learn in this moment also that the music that we're hearing is diegetic because there's a man sitting on the couch uh, playing guitar, which is, I was I love that little touch of like explaining where the music someone's hearing in a film is coming from and making it real to the scene and real to what the characters are hearing. Uh it's just a little mm-hmm. detail of like scene setting and tone setting that I adore when it shows up. So I was thrilled to see it happen here. <laughs> yeah, it just brings you into it. Mm-hmm. The woman is greeted and taken in to see her grandmother who lies all peaceful, dressed in white on her bed, um, resting, but deceased. That explains uh, why there's such a crowd has gathered at the home. This is everyone here in mourning. Um, as she sits with her grandmother, a woman outside ca- calls for Carmelita, uh, said grandmother, um, calling her a witch and surprise so many people have shown up to her funeral it's the woman from the hospital uh, before as we'll learn her name is uh, Domingas she's drunk and screaming about uh, her old friend surprised how many people have shown up for her funeral and as she yells she's eventually escorted away by some of the attendees despite, despite pro- protesting that she should be allowed to stay because Carmelita was her friend um, the father in response addresses the crowd of attendees saying uh, of his mother that she had a large family, lots of friends, uh, bricklayers, scientists, gigolos and whores, but no thieves. Um, All over the world, many of who couldn't come because of the problems in Bacaro, all to say, uh, Carmelita and Bacaro all live on through them and their extended family and the people. Um, Crowd cheers, great motivational speech. We love to see it. Um, (laughs) And back inside we see... funeral. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a bringing the mood back up. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't be sad all the time. Yeah. Just some of it. Just, only for, like, the bigger funeral bits. Um, mm-hmm. Like, when we go back inside to see family portraits as Carmelita is uh, finally lifted from her bed and the funeral procession begins. Uh, quite the figure in the community. She's got a large crowd of followers as they begin to sing um, some of the lyrics that I've, this movie is uh, for the most part in Portuguese, which uh, I don't speak natively. Um, so I was relying on the subtitles here, but uh, part of the lyrics are rather uh, moving uh, a feast of fear and terror. Phantoms haunt the wake, punching holes in the trunk of night, the woodpecker's beak spells are floating in the air. The work of an evil sorcerer charms and jinxes dreamed up uh, at the Django in Nicaragua. Um, just sort of setting kind of an ethereal tone for this procession and as we go into the movie of something darker lurking underneath what is not a mundane but 
mundane uh, situation up till now. As they sing, the woman in the crowd who we've been following from the truck uh, flashes back to the pill she took uh, and remarks to the woman beside her as she stares at the coffin that this is the second dead person she's seen today. And as she continues to look at the coffin, uh, water starts to run from the inside of it. The song ends, the processors wave white fabric handkerchiefs in the air and sunset settles over the land later a truck with a crate on the back outfitted for passengers pulls into baccarat the crate home hooks up to the water pump as the town rises for the day kind of folks slowly showering getting ready um my man watering a greenhouse built into a school bus which was very cool mm-hmm. <laughs> of that folks of the crate hang up a sign quella defunct which is uh like happy house <laughs> and it's Got a bunch of naked ladies on it. So, dear audience, you know, extrapolate from there what you think that that might represent. Waggle the eyebrows. Yes. <laughs> do a little, the eyebrows. Do a little awooga and, like, move on, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, I was excited to see a language that I uh, could read show up on screen, even if it was for a brief moment. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I know that. <laughs> mm-hmm. As they, everyone goes about getting ready for the morning, the loudspeakers kick on and our uh, MC, who <laughs> will be our town, town crier throughout the movie, uh, begins to make the morning announcements, so to speak. DJ Urso. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, he's like one of my favorite characters. I love him. <laughs> he's fantastic. At first I was like, oh, he's just there for the funeral procession. And then he pops up again here and I'm like, oh no, this is our, this is our narrator. This, this is the man who's going to carry mm-hmm. us through this movie. <laughs> so fantastic <laughs> honestly and it's just like it fits the the vibe of the film so much because mm-hmm. he's supposed to be like the shakespearean chorus yes but like <laughs> but he's got like a karaoke DJ. microphone radio dj aesthetic big led <laughs> wall it's just everything about him he's out there like we're being attacked we're being attacked next up major laser <laughs> He's got his priorities straight, you know? You, the show must go on. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Amen to that. <laughs> um, he's announcing in this scene that uh, Bacaro is cut out from cut off from southern Brazil. The highway's uh, going to be shut for at least another week. So we get a sense of like just how isolated uh, this town really is. No one seems phased by this. This is clearly the norm, more or less. A woman opens the Museum of History, which will sort of feature in the background throughout a number of scenes. Uh, and in the hospital, the doctor, Domingos, who was, again, the woman protesting at the funeral, um, diagnoses a patient with having a hangover. <laughs> it was, I, I love the execution of this scene because we enter with the patient describing, like, I have a headache, I'm like, super dizzy, I'm tired. And the doctor, in the most deadpan, is like, I, I diagnose you with hangover. <laughs> <laughs> that's when you realize that this movie is a comedy you're like yeah. oh okay. <laughs> okay and uh Dominguez is played by um Sonia Braga who is just so funny she's such a witty dry performance in this movie I absolutely loved every scene that she was in because uh, I think she brought a lot of verb to this character who could otherwise be very mm-hmm. dip into shrewish very quickly but she always felt like a core pillar uh, of the film. Yeah. Um, she also gives a man who enters uh, after spending a drunken night getting kicked out of his home a bed to sleep in for a while. So get the sense that she's really, you know, keeping tabs on everyone and making sure everyone is taken care of, even if it's their own, you know, drunken endeavors that are getting them stuck in 
her particular mm-hmm. clinic. And she's so blasé about it too. Like, it's so funny. She's just like, oh, you're drunk. Yeah, just go sleep it off. You're fine. Yeah. <laughs> you get the sense that this has happened a few times. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like, she's, she's done with it. <laughs> she's implied to be um, drinking herself as well, no? Yeah, there's a few comments that are like, oh, you know, when she's sober, she's really reliable. Um, So I think it's implied that she's sort of just known to be drinking quite a bit in the background. Um, Mm -hmm. She also has a wife, which is fun. Go LGBTQA. Yeah. Yeah, we love the rap. Exactly. (laughs) Um, uh, Back on the street, a man walks past the prostitute's crate home, bidding them good morning. Uh, Clearly, they are also not an uncommon sight in town, and everyone seems to just would be like... Hey man, come hang. The woman and her uh, friend and or sister um, are eating breakfast at her parents' house. We'll learn this woman from the beginning. Truck scene's name is Teresa in this scene. So for the sake of being more clear going forward, I'll refer to her as Teresa. Uh, including some leftover cake from their grandmother that she had made before her death, presumably. I would be very spooked if she had made it <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> there are themes of like the grandmother still being there despite being dead throughout the movie. So I think mm-hmm. this is like the first time that really shows up. Yeah. This is the first moment where we're called attention to it of like, here's some remnant of her hanging around um, mm. in this piece of cake here. I do have to wonder how long ago that cake was made. Mm. I don't know. Maybe it's like a fruit cake keeps really well. This is not a, <laughs> not a super important <laughs> question to the rest of the movie, but it's what I was thinking about. <laughs> I'm still thinking, I'm like, okay, wait, maybe she just used, like, a lot of preservatives. Yeah, you know? well, like, my, um, my grandfather makes zucchini bread. He makes, like, hundreds of loaves every summer because he has a, a garden set up in his backyard in Philadelphia where he just grows mm-hmm. zucchini, and he just only makes zucchini bread with it. And he freezes it so that we're still eating it months later. But I don't think this was frozen, so I'm not sure if that supplies here. Hmm. So many possibilities. <laughs> so many possibilities. Like, baking. Yes. <laughs> mm baked goods oh but uh as they're sort of having their family morning after funeral conversations over breakfast uh, a man named picote enters and greets them uh mr plinio the plinio the uh father teresa and madalena who's the other girl sitting at the table sister probably uh or cousin or something along the lines picote takes a seat uh plinio asking if that thing was him and we get a flash of a tape which um, shows a man entering a room with a gun and Picote neither confirms nor denies that that was him on that tape. So we kind of get a sense of like, man's got some shady stuff going on in his past. Conversation continues vis-a-vis a, that video. Um, and as he tries to make small talk away from that, uh, Teresa leans over and asks him to sleep with her that night. Uh, and he kind of has a moment of like, aren't you in mourning? <laughs> Which is kind of continuing the comedy of this movie. <laughs> And she's like, no, I'm not religious. (laughs) (laughs) Classic. And he sort of just like chuckles that off. Sure. Uh, And they continue the conversation regarding the events of the funeral and uh, Domingas. She and Carmelita, as we kind of learn again, used to be friends, but uh, Baccaro couldn't handle Carmelita and no one can handle Domingas, uh, who, as we're discussing, gets up from her pensive window surveying to uh, watch the brothel running uh, in her home as she kind of walks through the rest of the building. We see it through a doorway. Um, uh, some prostitutes doing what prostitutes want or want to do. Uh, mm-hmm. In the school, we go to a school now because towns tend to have those. Some real classic (laughs) 
brass band warm-ups are happening. Some kids on the tuba doing their absolute best to get their instruments in tune. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what it is about kids playing like brass instruments poorly, but it is always so funny. <laughs> just, <laughs> it just brings back memories. Yeah, the universal experience of like having to try and learn to play an instrument and not being particularly good at it. It's <laughs> hearing mm. everyone else who's not particularly good at it. Um, I don't know about you. Our school had like mandatory band for a year. And usually it just meant you played the recorder for three weeks and then you would get, um, if you weren't good at it, you got like rejected from the actual band. <laughs> but my younger brother oh my God, made it through. And so he played the tuba all through high school. <laughs> what? The tuba is not the most eloquent instrument in the world when it's played solo. It's an important oh, component no. of the orchestra, but by itself, <laughs> not great. So this scene really These like flashed like, me back. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. But just on loop for practicing day in and day out. Oh gosh, Oof. fair enough. Yeah, but we uh we don't I think <laughs> yes. Oh no no, we um in my school we had like a recorder as well. Uh-huh. And I can still remember because they made us like sing the notes out loud before we could play them so uh-huh. we could remember them. It was like re si si la so so si re It will be in my head till the day I die. <laughs> yeah, um I mean I I had to learn how to play the recorder, but I think if you asked me to play like hot cross buns nowadays it'd get I got nothing. <laughs> Music was not my forte. <laughs> Uh, oh, no. uh, I was sounding much similar to the kids in this movie uh, <laughs> outside of the school uh, Plinio is leading a little lesson for some of the kids as they watch an airplane uh, fly by in the sky discussing its trajectory and where it's heading uh, Sao Paulo but um, when they try to look up on the map to see where Bakuro is in its uh, flight path it, the town just isn't listed um, they head back inside to look on the class computer um, and even though the map switches even to satellite mode, they don't see their town anywhere, uh, although Plinio insists that it was there previously. So we get our, kind of our first hint that something funky is going on in this, this small town. He doesn't disturb the kids, however, uh, and pulls down a handmade map in front of the classroom, uh, in front of the chalkboard, uh, that does show the layout of Bakaro and the surrounding areas. A uh, much more like old-fashioned style uh, map there. As we kind of move from this, we get to watch as a very loud car with an LED screen on the side uh, blasting a campaign song pulls up. It's Tony Jr. Um, <laughs> another rich and nuanced character. Uh, Darlene, the kind of like town lookout, sends a message uh, on the walkie that our our boy Tony is entering and uh, our our friend the MC is going to broadcast that, pass that along to the, all the Bakura, getting a surprise visit from the mayor on his campaign trail. <laughs> as you do. As one does. Uh, immediately, folks start packing up to get out of the way, and as the loud vehicle pulls into Bakaro, again, blasting Tony Jr.'s campaign song, which is very jaunty and, like, jingly, um, everyone has vacated the previously alive morning t- morning square. Tony gets out of his Dead car. Instantly. Yes. It becomes a ghost town. 
Mm-hmm. Tony gets out of his car, observing the now empty streets, and gives a signal to a truck full of books, uh, telling the driver to film it as they back up and dump all the books on the step of the school, completely disorganized and just like this massive comical pile of uh, literature. <laughs> Tony then gets on his megaphone to address the town. Uh, you know, I know we had our differences in the past, which is never a good way to start. If you hear someone saying they had their differences in the past <laughs> in a movie, you can just clock that right there. Problem child. Mark it down. <laughs> Stop watching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he's bringing them gifts, books, school supplies, food, coffins, medicine. All of those things are listed in the same sentence. All equally important. The elections are coming and he wants to make sure that they, you know, Vote for him so they can unite, starting with these retinal scans that we're going to do to register for voting and things like that. He tries to demand that folks come out and get scanned as voices from the houses all around start shouting, calling him a crook and demanding that he open the dam to let the the water into the river. Um, He sort of just nervously laughs them off, making empty promises to fix the water issue. But it's useless no matter what he says. The voices are getting more and more annoyed and continuing to insult him and try and chase him off. He tries to draw them out by kicking his song back up as uh, nearby another scene plays out. Sandra, one of the prostitutes from the crate, and an entourage are uh, kind of being forced into Tony's truck, a woman demanding pay up front, and uh, the man forcing her in is one of the mayor's guys, uh, and he has his hands on her neck, so clearly it's not not a totally kosher situation. Mm. As this is happening, uh, the woman is yelling that they're forcing her to go, uh, and the, the mayor tries to tell the woman to put it on his tab as Dominga approaches the truck. Um, she looks at Sandra and then to the mayor, clearly aware that this is a situation she's being forced into, uh, and threatens to feed his cock to the hens if she comes back hurt at all. <laughs> Ooh. So Domingo is really the like matriarch of this town. She watches out for everyone, whether it's just the hangover or, you know, if they're getting dragged off by the goons of the local um, mayor-elect candidate. What a life. What a, what a life in this earth, though. <laughs> what a life she leads. <laughs> oh, gosh. Truly multitasking out here. Yeah. <laughs> Not just a doctor. Exactly. What is it? <laughs> Do you know that meme that's like, I'm a medic, but, and it's like a doctor with a gun? Yes. <laughs> Sir, that's her. That is the exact energy she brings <laughs> whenever she's on screen. It's it. You've nailed it. Uh. <laughs> oh, sir. Tony Jr. leaves Bacaro. He's off. The mayoral candidate has exited for the moment. Um, and as we go back to the road, uh, a man on his motorbike is hounded by a tiny flying saucer. Uh, and the sound it makes is like very droning and, and interpretive. And this is kind of another instance of like, oh, that technology is strange. Like, we w- I haven't seen it before. It's not the drone you expect to see. Uh, it looks like a UFO. This movie takes place in the future. This is where it's becoming apparent. Just the little reminders yes. once in a while. Like the tablet in the car, the small, tiny UFO hounding a man on a motorbike. All of this is going to tie into the future of it all. Mm-hmm. That evening... Uh, the MC and Plinio distribute the food and supplies that were brought by the mayor, uh, even though some of it, as they note, is expired, so eat it at your own risk. Uh, Domingos also gets up to give a little PSA about the selection of vaccines that Teresa brought in her suitcase, uh, as well as the box load of Brazil 4 that Tony Jr. had delivered that day. Uh, she's like, this is a, a Trojan horse drug. Um, everyone knows it. It's a mood inhibitor presented as a painkiller. And if you take it, it will make you feel, you know, happy or whatever. But it does it does nothing for you. It just keeps you dull and complacent. It's there. People want it. 
but she throws her portion out. Uh, she takes the chance to apologize to everyone for her behavior at the funeral, as Carmelita was an important person. Uh, and this is when we get the comment of like, oh, you know, she's sweet when she's sober. <clears throat> Food stores open up, the crowd gathers to kind of grab what they want, and uh, Sandra ag- returns to town. Um, folks try to stop and ask if she's all right, but she just heads home, having been harrowed by her previous experiences. As the town sleeps that night, a rumbling kicks up. Something is coming. It's horses, and a lot of them. They charge through the main street, waking up just about every single person that they pass by. And uh, as they're examined by Pacote and some of the other men, they realize they're from uh, Manolito's farm. But right now, for some reason, they are here in the center of town. Uh, The next morning, two of the men head off with the horses to go take a look and return them, since when they try to call the farmer, no one answers. Uh, And as they leave, the water guy and his truck pull into Baccaro. His truck is full of holes. Somebody shot at him and he didn't even notice a little bit. Uh, (laughs) It's like leaking water as it's spilling out and kids run up with buckets to collect it before it hits the ground. Um, I do love the bullet holes when we go to a close-up shot are like rusted around them a little bit as though they had been there for a very long time. (laughs) And I love how the other um, villagers are like, how did you not notice? Do you never look in mirrors? And he's like, no. Keep my eyes on the road when I'm driving. (laughs) Honestly, terrible driver. Very unsafe. No, no. But he has an important (laughs) job. So, Mm -hmm. even though, again, he is losing a lot of product to the bullet holes. Oh, God. Oh. And it wasn't even like one bullet hole. It was like three. Yeah. Very close to where he sits. <laughs> the whole side of his truck is like riddled with these holes. I don't know how he didn't notice any of them, but I guess if you don't use your rear view mirrors, that's, that's what happens, you know? You can miss a whole I guess other it's world. It's also like there. a point. Oh, I, <laughs> for real. <laughs> I wonder how often he hears like bullet noises or like gun firing noises yeah. for him to just be like oh shit that's not me that's no fine. big deal it's like a tuesday you know <laughs> mm. Mm. be like there he goes again yeah so nice it kind of sets up this town as a bit of a violent past and we'll learn about that much later but it does set up how blase everyone is going to be about just like gunfire happening um mm. As Pacote kind of examines the shot-up truck, he gets a bad feeling about this and uh, calls the men on horses to tell them to turn around and come back. Before they can, they spot two motorbikes with uh, neon jumpsuited riders on them heading for Baccaro. Uh, the bikes split off to pass the horsemen, staying true to course. Um, once again, Darlene relays the message, two bikes heading for Baccaro, and everyone gets a text at the same time as the bikes pull in. Everyone's in tune to their alert system. Um, the extremely colorfully dressed riders remove their helmets, a woman and a man. Um, again, they're straight, like, 90s bowling alley jumpsuits. The <laughs> They could not stand out more in the otherwise very, like, monotone colored town. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And they just look so like pretentious almost. Yeah. <laughs> like why are you dressed like that? <laughs> <sighs> they uh they enter the general store and try to like they'd like make some small talk with the storekeep while purchasing, you know, drinks and describing themselves as like mere riders, they're tourists, the whole neonness of their aesthetic kind of comes together. They ask a bit about Baccaro and the shopkeep recommends that they check out the museum. Uh, And when they ask what the name of the town means, it's described as a bird that only comes out at night, uh, but it is a hunter. It's got a rather hunter name. Ominous. (laughs) Ominous. (laughs) It's a predator. (laughs) 
I, I, I'm not sure if you googled uh, Bakura, but in it translates as Nighthawk. But um, in a lot of the kind of like English language versions, they just keep Bakura because it's not a direct translation. But yeah, mm. Nighthawk. Ooh, fun fact. I love <laughs> It's a situation where both in English and in uh, Portuguese, they sound very cool. So I, I don't know how much benefit there is to translating it to Nighthawk. Uh, so I get why mm. some versions might leave it the same. That is a fun fact, though. I like. I love, nice. That explains the um, <laughs> bird of prey that comes out at night would be <laughs> connecting the dots. Uh, the two riders leave the store uh, <laughs> to be immediately harassed by our guitar playing friend from earlier, who uh, asks after the water truck full of holes. But the riders are like, "Oh, we didn't see anything." Uh, he keeps following them around and singing at them about them. <laughs> And the, the woman tries to, like, give him a tip to get him to go away. But he just laughs her off, like, I don't want your money. I'm going to keep making fun of you through song instead. <laughs> Meanwhile, Teresa and the Wooderman approach the riders as they get ready to head out on their bikes uh, and ask if they saw anything in the road. But again, they just explain that they, they stayed off the main roads. They're just touring the region. Rivaldo, as we'll learn the uh, Wooderman's name is, uh, Teresa and Picote introduce themselves to the two riders. Uh, Juario and Maria uh, the bikers mentioned that the village wasn't on the map and it was pure luck that they came upon it which seems as a surprise to Teresa who could have sworn it was on the map making this the second instance of Baccaro not being listed when it should have been on said maps I guess they map a lot <laughs> biker continues that she has no cell reception which is strange as they always tend to in town and all Teresa notices as well that she also lacks that reception um the bikers leave, and we go back to the horse boys, who also now have no single, single signal. Ah. <laughs> there was a point that when the two bikers are in the store, they place like a electronic device under the counter. Oh, I didn't notice that. It's it's like a flash, and then they leave. Ooh, good catch. Something's mm-hmm. not right with these bikers. I watched this movie like exactly <laughs> suspicious. Ooh. Connect those dots. Yeah, I'm glad you caught that because I uh, every time I whenever I, this is a movie I hadn't seen prior to the podcast. So whenever we have movies that I haven't seen before, I'm always so worried. I'm like, I'm gonna miss something like critical. So I'm happy that you've seen it enough times to be able to call call that one out. Uh, and please let me know if I miss anything else. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 like a single flash, but just it's there. It's the, it's the fine details. <laughs> Yes, uh, we get as this. As you can tell, I'm obsessed with this movie. <laughs> as you should be. It's a good movie. It's a good movie to be obsessed with if you're going to be obsessed with one. There's a lot to be obsessed with in it. As we return to the horseman, the sound of a the flying saucer picks up faintly in the background as they begin to approach the farm, uh, and more importantly, approach the bloody, shot-up truck in front of it. Inside are the farmer's dead family. Um, one of the riders immediately wants to leave, but uh, Marcel, one of the horsemen, runs into the house to see the farmer, also dead. The two get on the motorcycle to kind of try and eat it back to town, but as they go, they are approached by our colorfully garbed riders on the middle of the road. Uh, the tourists, quote-unquote, go to make some small talk, asking if they've got any cell signal, and though the men try to bluff through having called for backup, Maria pulls out a gun, and so ends the two tragic horse returners. The saucers, like, video camera picks up all of this also. <laughs> we go into, like, saucer vision. We snap into, like, the futuristic aspect of it immediately. Yeah. <laughs> Get to really, like, hone in on just what the, uh, sci-fi of it all is. Um... 
Mm. And we also hear a woman's voice reporting through the drone, uh, two men down, uh, and the saucer continues to like follow the colorfully garbed bikers as they make their way back to base, kind of hounding them and messing with them and trying to knock one of them off the bike. We see a man enter an abandoned old building full of rusting equipment back at the quote-unquote base, where the colorfully garbed riders return, as does the saucer. Uh, and we switch into English as we talk to the white people of this movie, which is both the name they would give themselves and also probably the easiest way to describe them. <laughs> at this compound, the whole gang gathers together, joined by the man from the abandoned building, and they sort of get comfy. Michael, the man, calls for a meeting in five, uh, and the woman who was controlling the drone kind of gives a little interview to someone about how she came to love her gun. She explains that she's from New York. And after we sort of like learn a little bit about her, sit with the various groups of this compound, including our two riders who are off by themselves, um, the only two who speak Portuguese, notably, we sort of let time pass a bit before settling in for that five minute later meeting. As it begins, Michael describes their successful first mission at the farm, but now they've started the countdown um, their signal jamming is working, they've got the town off the map, and tomorrow they're going to shut off power. So they are behind the series of strange incidents and murder that has happened in and around Bakaro recently. They've shut down the road and are going to move in tomorrow. A bunch of them get like calls, they have earbuds in, uh, sort of like a Bluetooth headset situation. Um, and one guy who came for the body count seems eager to skip ahead to when they roll down Main Street and shoot everyone. Uh, but it seems that Michael is not quite as um, gung-ho for the shots fired of it all. Uh, we get the sense that these are not the best people in the world. Perhaps you might even describe them as the antagonists or villains of this movie. <laughs> hey! <laughs> As they discuss, Maria asks them to stop playing back the video from the drone of her killing the bikers. It creeps her out. Uh, and as she and her partner discuss in, uh, as Michael describes it, Brazilian, but Portuguese. Uh, <laughs> there Brazilian goes the reference. Is, <laughs> Brazilian is not a language as far as I'm aware. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. You know, just in case you weren't <laughs> sure that these guys who have been um, killing off the citizens of Bakro for seemingly no reason at all are the villains, they're also racist. So just tag that, tally that off for you right there. Just note it down. <laughs> and they're just so like blatantly racist, like cartoonishly almost. It's yeah. like, I don't know, it's, it's really weird. <laughs> yeah, it's, it adds to the ambiance. It's super heightened. So in the same way that like it get whenever there's like violence or sex in this movie, it's like explicit and just there in the same way that like, okay, these guys are just blatantly awful people, racist, you know, um, racist, violent, uncaring, and there's no illusion about what they are. They don't, they don't try to, like, cover up their villainy at all, because why would they? They're only amongst themselves, and they think that what they're doing is okay. Um, not right mm. morally, but acceptable for them to do. Michael asks them not to use Portuguese in front of them uh, and makes Maria continue to watch the tape. It seems that these two uh, are the only Brazilians on the team. Everyone else is American or German or, you know, most importantly, they're white. <laughs> and like you mentioned, uh, the Michael, the leader, is a German guy played by Udo Kier, who's the guy who plays every <laughs> German villain in every movie ever. So in case you were really unsure yeah. about who you're supposed to be on the side of in this movie... <laughs> Take notes. <laughs> For real, they were like, these are the bad guys. Yeah, put it in big old, big old lettering up top. Villain. <laughs> Just flashing neon. Yep. 
<laughs> uh, the team is like bullying them about both being Brazilian and being uncomfortable with the whole murder situation. Uh, and as the bullying kind of stops, Michael asks them why they shot the bikers in the first place. And they're like, you know, well, they, they would talk. It's like, this is, we're trying to keep you guys from getting found. Uh, but the rest of the white people on the team are like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. You took our kills. We start to get the sense of why they're here. It's for the hunt, quote unquote. It's the um, the most dangerous game of it all. They're here to hunt the town of Baccaro. Maria tries to explain and justify what they did, but Michael and the team say otherwise. Um, and, you know, they kind of go into their whole thesis and all of that. Uh, but before anyone at the table can get too far into their particular why, who, what, where, when, and why of how they ended up on this p- expedition, uh, everyone gets static in their headsets and rapidly get up and shoot the two uh, Brazilian riders, RIP to the neon outfitted real ones. They will be missed. Mm-hmm. Not They're, really. Much. Not really. Their aesthetic will be missed. <laughs> yeah. The white people go through their pockets, finding the IDs that the Brazilians had, some sort of like official, potentially government ID. You, th- you think that that might come back later on. It's like they were going to try and be in on it and stop the plot, but it doesn't really crop up too much later. Meanwhile, back in town, Pacote comes across the scene of the riders in the farm. He and the man uh, on the bike who was previously harassed by the drone chat about uh, said drone near Baccaro and the situation with all of their now dead friends. They load up the dead into their car. Uh, Pacote and the man splitting up. The man uh, saying... or. Pacote to go talk to uh, Lunga as he's the only person who knows where they are. <laughs> and we get a little I'm so driving montage. <laughs> uh, as he drives, he yells at his dead friends in the back seat for continuing after he told them to turn back and come back to town, which is both heartbreaking. And he, it's, it's funny because of the like weekend Bernie's of it all, like the dead friends in the back of the car, but it's heartbreaking because he's yelling at his <laughs> dead friends. He's like, no, you should turn back. Ugh. I love it's a very like fine line between like dark and comedic and sad and I think that they tell it really well. Mm-hmm. And I love how like open and unabashed with emotions mm-hmm. the characters are. I don't know why, yeah. but it just strikes me as a bit unusual in the cinema that I normally watch. Mm-hmm. It's not like um and you I don't know if subdued is the right word, but I feel like a lot of the performances were very overt. Like they weren't trying to hide the characters were feeling. None of the characters were concealing their emotions from each other. And so that means that we as the viewers mm-hmm. get to also see them just like portrayed straight, uh, which is a real, mm-hmm. I feel like a real turn from a lot of like drama, <laughs> dramas where you might get, you know, it's all about the yearning or a character's like inner emotions. But here it's more about like the external conflict and how it's making them feel, um, Mm-hmm. And I think you get a lot of that through the way that the performances are so overt. And I, I, th- I thought it was a really interesting turn. It made the acting more fun. Fun's the wrong word. More interesting to watch uh, and mm-hmm. a bit of a change from like what you're used to seeing. So I think, I think, you're, I think you're right there. Exactly. I think you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> I think it's also like um, in contrast to how complicated and subdued the plot is because like yeah. you don't really understand entirely what's going on. So at least if you know what the characters are feeling, it gives some clarity. Yeah, it gives you, like, a touch point for, like, here's how I should be similarly feeling in this moment. Because uh, mm. you have, yeah. you know, if, if you're empathizing with the characters, they're, they're your guiding light in this scenario. <laughs> mm. You're like, is this a good thing? Is this a bad Oh, it's a bad thing. Okay. Got it. Noted. Cool. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> <laughs> you're just gathering clues little by little. <laughs> Pulling the thread. Uh mm. Picote drives to a hill and uses like a um, mirror to flash a light signal to the top of a nearby, um, I 
I think it's either the dam or just like a tall tower between two hills. I was a little unsure of the building. Not super important. I think it is a dam, yeah. yeah. But it's like a like an old dam that's not been used anymore. Yeah, because it's not holding any water back, but it's situated mm-hmm. where a dam would be. Lunga agrees from this signal to meet with Picote, uh, who approaches the dam, pulling back the roof of his car to reveal the two uh, dead horse riders, including one of the guard's cousins. Lunga and the boys come out to meet Picote, uh, the one guard mo- mourning his cousin, uh, Flavio. Uh, Picote brings the squad up to speed and asks for their help in defending uh, Baccarat. Lunga wants to know who did it, but Picote, of course, doesn't know. They haven't met the hunters yet. Um, and Lunga kind of remarks like, oh, you know, I'm hungry. It's rough being out here all alone. And Picote convinces them to return to Baccarat, reminding them that, hey, there's there's food there and the people know what you do for, for us. Um, so we've got our, our folk hero coming back, returning to town. At night, we watch as Picote's uh, snuff film plays back, his assassination tape, Trigger King, Picote's top hits as it runs through a couple different uh, instances of him committing murder. Uh, with like... <laughs> With, like, all of the verb of, like, a top ten craziest stunts video, <laughs> or, like, the editing was wild. <laughs> it really creates, like, the the atmosphere of, I don't know, the times, yeah. I guess. Like, this is a country where this is a video that you send to kids. Yeah. This Damn. goes viral. Like, this is what is trending right now. Mm-hmm. Um, this was on the front page of TikTok. <laughs> Oof. Can you imagine? <laughs> Oh my god! Uh, the whole town, including Teresa, are also sitting around watching this on like the LED that the um, MC has in the town square. Uh, as Picote takes his place in front of the crowd, int- he introduces uh, Lunga, who walks in to cheers and raucous applause. <laughs> uh, but before anyone can say anything, uh, cries draw their attention as the families also see the dead horse riders and begin to mourn uh, their relatives. So we go from a moment of extreme elation to um, in- intense sorrow. Uh, never are the emotions subtle or weak in this movie. It's always a high mm. of some si- sort. Up and down and up and down. Yep. <laughs> With no rest. <laughs> uh, the town does town at night stuff. There's like flashlight tag going on with the kids. There's some dancing slash I think maybe capoeira because it's Brazilian. But I think so, yeah. Wasn't a hundred. They kind of look like they're fighting a little. Yeah, bit. Yeah, I'm not like enough of a martial arts expert to be able to identify it on site. But if I had to guess, I think <laughs> that's what they were doing. Um, music, uh, so. <laughs> lots of fun town at night things. But as some non-diegetic techno music kicks in, we get to see the the funeral of the two men as well. A kind of a somber moment amongst all of these fun and games. Lunga and their boys eat and recap with uh, Plinio, who all is back in town, including our our girl Teresa. Uh, And now Lunga, who for as long as what's going on, will remain in town to help defend uh, Bakaro. They set about digging a hole in the middle of the town square, uh, unsure what for as of yet. Uh, While this is all happening, kids are off in another part of town telling spooky stories to each other when they're scared by a man wearing like a monster mask made of like, you know, paper mache and string and all the classic mask accoutrement. They run away, being chased by him a little bit, and their, you know, screams turn to giggles. This is all fun and games for them still. Uh, Eventually, the children decide to play a game called Who Could Go Furthest in the Dark, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Uh... (laughs) First, a boy in blue sets out, told to watch out jokingly for the recently deceased uh, ghosts and such. 
Uh, as the others look on, the boy goes farther and farther before dropping the flashlight and running back. Next up is Rivaldo, another boy who claims to be quite brave. He runs out to where the flashlight was left, picking it up and continuing on, eventually through the darkness coming face to face with one of the men from the compound who shoots him with a silencer. The kids all run, screaming, only the blinking flashlight left behind at the scene of such tragedy. The clock hits midnight, the power in town all shuts off, and everyone in the square knows that they are now under attack. The screams of the children pick up as the town learns of Rivaldo's death, and flashlights in hand, the town goes to find the boy, his mother, weeping. Uh, Lungo carries him back to town. Um, no one, again, still sure exactly who has done this. They don't know who is assaulting them uh, just yet. One man, desperate to escape, Claudio gets in a car and tells his wife that they're getting out of here. Picote tries to stop him. They have to stick together. It's dangerous. But the man and his wife continue. Uh, in short order, however, the saucer drone catches sight of them. And Jake and Joanna, two of the white people, move to intercept Nodling, the wife, is praying as they drive, and Claudio tries to reassure her, but it's no use as they are shot up by Joanna and Jake in short order and uh, with far more delight than they should be taking in killing uh, human beings. Joanna, in particular, seems exhilarated and asks Jake to fuck, and they do, in the middle of the brush, very clearly, uh, something is running high. It may be emotions, it may be adrenaline, who could say? Uh, and the drone watches. <laughs> yeah. The drone watches and, like, Whoever's controlling the drone is like, uh, you guys know we can see you, right? And they just flip it off because clearly this is not a concern at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> they are high on the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, oof. oof. Back at the base, uh, Michael breaks up a fight between Terry and I think John, which is all the white people are interchangeable for the most part. <laughs> As... <laughs> John has recently, uh, John just shot a kid, which is not what Terry signed up for. He claims to believe that the kid was armed, but Terry's like, clearly it was a flashlight. It was like blinking and lit up. Michael kind of like tries to talk them both down, running through all of their previous backgrounds, correctional officer, clerk, etc., and pointing out to just sort of like the mundane jobs that they had and that they're here to po release some tension. And as he does so... They get the call that another point was scored by Joanna and Jake, prompting Terry to get irritated and refer to Michael as a Nazi. Uh, the tension mounts, Michael asking Terry how old he is, 37, and Michael's like, okay, well, I haven't been in Germany for 40 years, which makes me more American than you are, which is totally how that works. Um, <laughs> and shoots Terry in his bulletproof vest, telling him to calm down, having knocked all the wind out of him and to not use stupid cliches next time he wants to piss someone off. So not everything is quite as cohesive in this group as they want everyone to believe. In the morning, there is rain. The hunters are on the move. Uh, in a, a gre isolated greenhouse, a man waters his plants completely naked, um, mixing up something with his mortar and pestle. And yeah, you know what? Man's just living his best life. He's out here. He's got his plants. <laughs> it's his house. Like, he can do what he wants. <laughs> no notes. <laughs> In this movie, there's so many scenes where you watch that and you're like, oh my god. But then, like, this is how yeah. it would be in real life. Like, you know what? You If you live far away from town, it's just you Why and your not? Wife. Why not? You're not expecting company or anything. It's just life. Uh, right? <laughs> it's hot out. There's just, no one around. Yeah, right? Live your life. Say love you. Do you. <laughs> what are, who cares? <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Hang out. Air it out. Uh, he returns to his home uh, as two of the hunters lie in wait, moving in once he enters the house to go in for the kill. They light the fronds on his uh, roof on fire, but before they can move into the doorway to shoot him, he uses a shotgun to take out uh, the first man who steps into his line of sight. Shocked that someone got the jump on them, the man and the wife continue to fire on the now surprised uh, female intruder as she looks to her fully decapitated comrade uh, for no help. They bat out the fire on the roof very casually after successfully hitting said woman and the two uh, Brazilians approach her as she lays bleeding out. She asks for help, but he responds in Portuguese, so she takes out her phone to, like, Google Translate in real time what they're saying. <laughs> and the phone is, like, this thin glass sheet as yeah. well, and it's so futuristic. <laughs> it's like, gotta well, remind you that this movie takes place in the future. We're all gonna be texting on glass. You could see through <laughs> your phone. The picture quality is gonna be insane. You have an iPhone 27. <laughs> <laughs> oh. She just keeps asking for help uh, and he keeps asking if she wants to live or die and why she's doing these things. But as she continues to ask for help, he gives her a pill to swallow similar to the one Teresa received earlier in the movie and they cart her to Bacaro. The rest of the hunters, however, continue marching into town. Uh, One of them, (laughs) Terry, venting about his divorce, uh, how he went to shoot his ex-wife, but she was out of town, so he drove around to the mall and park, but never crossed the line, and now God is letting him deal with that pain here. Michael uh, starts to describe how, like, this is the point in the journey where everything always starts to get out of hand, and as they continue to hike, they chat about uh, where they are, since, again, Bakuro is no longer on the map. The gang splits up, Michael heading off on his own to do ominous uh, German bad guy things, walking along... <laughs> Walking the dirt road alone, eventually he is flagged down by a woman outside of a house, asking him to come closer. It's Dominga, and she has food set up on a table outside. She's playing American music uh, to make him more comfortable, I assume. Uh, and asks af- after he asks after his two missing hunters, and she doesn't answer immediately, he turns on the offensive and pulls out a knife. She puts on her bloody lab coat in response, and when he asks what the blood on it is, she's like, it's it's the woman's, she's dead, she lost too much, so rip to another hunter. Michael, in frustration, flips the table with food as Dominga drinks from her flask, and he continues on. Uh, she escapes unscathed from this encounter once again with the, the sheer gravitas of this woman. <laughs> Allow her to survive through all sorts of situations. Honestly... That was the weirdest scene for me because I was like, what is going on? But at the same time, you kind of get it. Yeah. It's sort of like a, like a standoff between the two leaders of each faction, kind of. But like, mm-hmm. at the same time, like, it's a little weird. <laughs> she made all this food <laughs> knowing he would walk down this road. What are you doing? Right. And she even like taste tests it to show yeah. that it's not poisonous. But like, where, where did this come from? When did you have the, t- the time to make this? Is this what you were doing while everyone else was doing capoeira earlier? Is this like... Apparently. <laughs> this and then saving the other, yeah. the other hunter. Apparently she died quickly because she had plenty of time to then immediately <laughs> turn around and head oh up gosh. the road. Oh. Uh, the other hunters approach the town in two-man teams, eventually arriving in Bakaro. Uh, Michael, meanwhile, takes his place at his sort of, like, sniper stand set up where he has a cooler and a case with the scope and munitions, um, setting up and taking aim as one team approaches the church. Walking through the village, no one is around. It's seemingly a ghost town. The hunters are confused. Where are their targets? 
Uh, but instead, they come across the clothes of those they've already killed hung on the clothesline, a uh, sign that they know they're there. The One of the women reports in, saying that, you know, there are kids' clothes present as well in those left on the line, as uh, <laughs> Terry, vindicated, continues to stalk around like, John, I told you! Terry stalks through a house, uh, a man passing by for just like a brief moment in the background. I was like, oh, they're here. <laughs> Mm-hmm. They did it's just such a abandon horror town. movie moment as well. Yeah, oh. <laughs> she's wearing like a white shirt too, and he just like whooshes on by. It was mm-hmm. spooky, but in a good way. <laughs> good spooky. <laughs> in in that same scene, he um, one of the hunters passes in front of the television. I don't know if you noticed that. He does, um, but on the television, yeah, it's like this huge, huge, massive flat screen, <laughs> which is just so out of place, um, in an otherwise fairly rural village, but on the flat screen, it says, like, oh, um, public executions will resume at 2.30, oh. um, at, or at 2 o'clock in, uh, in Sao Paulo, so it's, like, another hint to the kind of, like, dystopian government that they're living under, huh. but yeah, that's one that's of those little details. Another good catch. <laughs> really adds to the whole world building of it all yes yes <laughs> for someone who podcasts as much as i do i've really lost the ability to speak english today and i do not know why <laughs> anyway it's just today it's that kind of day yeah yeah um <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, it makes for good entertainment people don't listen to this podcast for like coherent um words <laughs> i listen to it just <laughs> it's all coming together Michael is searching the town with his scope and he shoots at a few buildings in the hopes of drawing people out, but to no avail. Uh, he does get Terry to ask him to stop shooting so they can go uh, get Willie and Kate, presumably the two who have now perished at the hands of the uh, naked farmer and his wife. As they do, uh, a truck with coffins pulls into town. It's the contractors that these folks have hired late as always. Terry's like, oh, we knew we were coming. Um, and as... He's talking about the truck. We get a shot of the kid running from behind the school. Uh, the townspeople are around. They're here, mm-hmm. waiting. The hunters have become the hunted, if you will. Uh, the, the truck pulls in and the contractors start to unload the coffins as Terry is approaching the museum. Entering, uh, Michael's be- Michael begins to like recant his tale of meeting uh, Dominga and like what's happened to him on his walk to his little sniper's nest. And uh, looking around the museum, Terry sees all the instances of rebellion that Baccaro's committed. We have all these pictures of like times that they've resisted uh, conquest mm-hmm. or what have you, uh, giving you a sense of the history of how willing this town is to fight back. They're not just going to take an invasion lying down no matter who it is. Michael shoots the truck drivers, uh, denying that he shot them when asked by the hunters, which feels ridiculous because who else possibly could have done it? And they're all like, Michael, we know it was you. Um, (laughs) Don't try to lie to us. We know where you are, and we know that (laughs) you're definitely behind this. Um, I love how, like, playful his character becomes at that moment, because you're like, what what is going on? It's all, like, a game to him. Exactly. They're like, Michael, is that you? And he's like, no. Of course it isn't. <laughs> Please. He's like a giggling, like, schoolgirl. <laughs> like, like, what are you guys talking about? Oh, my God. <laughs> I totally didn't do it. Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> We're pitching an entirely different movie right now, but it's... <laughs> I'd still watch it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> 
Uh, it's Harry continuing his adventures through the museum, which we're finally getting to see the inside of now in the, the climax of the movie. Uh, he finds a, a wall full of labels for different names of weapons, but no guns, as he realizes that, oh, the villagers are definitely ready to defend themselves. Um, uh, another pair of hunters reach the hole dug by Lunga, uh, and the... <laughs> Remaining uh, hunter woman opens fire on the school where people are hiding. We see as she's shooting them, ducking behind the walls. Um, and as soon as she finishes firing off her rounds, the villagers open fire, uh, re- returning her blasts in force from the building. And now two hunters are down and the action has truly begun. Um, behind Woo! Terry. <laughs> the point where we all were like, yeah, rebellion. Um Let's go. <laughs> Behind Terry, uh, a rug is pushed aside, and from a like hole in the ground, uh, Lungan and their boys jump out, uh, shooting him and taking a machete to him afterwards. R.I.P. to Terry. Somehow he had more character than any of the other hunters, except for maybe Michael. <laughs> we just learned so much about him from his divorce and his no killing children policy. It doesn't make me like him, but I'm like, well, I guess I understand more about you than I do anyone else. I'm getting brutally murdered right now. As the sounds of combat break out, Michael shoots one of the other hunter duo, but John manages to escape his friendly fire and makes it into the museum, where Lunga and the boys lie in wait, so that is another one bites the dust there. Hearing these gunshots... (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) They shouldn't have played that song over this scene, but you absolutely could cut it over this scene and it probably would have worked out. Right. They should have. It would have fit in as well. Like, it would have... Kind it's, of fit the vibe of the film. It fits the vibe, and it's like slow enough that it's not like a total. It kind of fits like the pace at which they're cutting between scenes because it's not like a rapidly cut action sequence. It's a very slow and deliberate. Like here are the executions in order. Mm-hmm. Hearing these gunshots, though, Michael switches to a revolver and goes to put it in his mouth to commit suicide. But before he pulls the trigger, uh, a woman appears in front of him, dressed all in white, and pointing dramatically behind him to where a farmer stands and he sees uh, the farmer with the gun holding him captive. He has been caught. He does not get to take the easy way out of uh, the consequences of his actions. Mm-hmm. Lunga emerges covered in blood. Carmelita. Ooh. <laughs> Grandma's coming back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she never left. Ooh. <laughs> She's here all along. Shocking. Lunga emerges covered in blood as they signal to the town that everything is uh, all clear and all of the Bacaraguans uh, emerge armed and take stock of the uh, slaughter that has gone on as they have saved their town and their lives. A funeral procession for the dead begins, this time with many more names read uh, as walking in from out of town is Dominga as she greeted by her wife and gives her a big old smooch. Uh, <laughs> from her, I don't know, recon mission, whatever she was doing that involved having a standoff with Michael. <laughs> uh, the heads of the hunters are placed in front of the church and many villagers are like taking photos with their phones and iPads and tablets and what have you. Uh, while Pakote asks Teresa if she thinks Lunga went too far, which no, she does not. The cleaning efforts begin, although the very humorously one woman having her house cleaned is like, oh, leave leave the bloody handprints on the wall, but clean up all the rest of the floor and everything. Oh no, that's um, that's in the museum. Oh, even better. It's part of history. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's gonna get a little plaque. <laughs> uh, as they're recovering from their uh, evening of self-defense, Tony Jr. once again arrives in town 
with a van full of uh, water bottles and clean seats looking for the gringo tourists. As the town silently circles up on him uh, and Pacote starts to laugh, Tony Jr. tries to walk it back, ask if they need everything, closes the doors to the van, and Lunga kind of brings him up to speed on all that he missed. Tony Jr.'s like, you know, whoa, we're all gonna we're all gonna pay for this. These are the events that have happened here. Even even me, I'm gonna, you know, be a trouble for this too. And tries to appeal to Plinio, who informs him everyone in town took a powerful psychotic drug, the pill we've seen people pop in throughout the film, and also notably the drug that uh, Tony Jr. himself was supplying to the town. The... No, it's a different one. There's oh. two drugs. The one that Tony Jr. supplied made people calm, whereas oh. the psychotropic one kind of um, gave them like visions almost, I think, and like decreased gotcha. fear. Oh, okay. That makes that's it. Yeah. That makes more sense because I was a little confused about that. So I'm glad that you've... <laughs> Thank you for the correction. <laughs> yeah, they took a powerful psychotic drug and only Tony Jr. is going to die for this one. Picote slaps Tony Jr. as uh, Michael, captured by the farmer, approaches, uh, and Tony tries to continue denying knowing him, but Michael yells to his amigo, which totally uh, sells the whole <laughs> scheme. Tony, again, tries to deny knowing him. He's like, I don't know who this crazy white guy is, but Michael just keeps yelling at him, shouting, uh, dinero, and like, you, know, you want money? Um, and an old <laughs> and it's like, oh, Tony, you, you fucked up, dude. Uh an old woman brings the <laughs> weak. No way you're getting gold. elected now. <laughs> uh, oh my god! <laughs> With the extended sequence of him being like, I don't know who that is, and yes. Michael's like, Tony, Tony. <laughs> it goes on it's for me. so long, and Michael clearly has no sense of like how that Tony cannot do anything to get him out of this. Like it's they're both screwed. Beautiful. So funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, the old woman, uh, an old woman brings the monster mask that previously was used to chase the children around, and Domingo places it on Tony's head as he is tied naked to a donkey and uh, walked out of town as the MC, our boy, narrates once again of them re- removing the demon from town and bemoaning the, <laughs> hoping the poor donkey comes back from his uh, devil's errand. <laughs> DJ Urso <laughs> tying it all in a nice little bow we love to see it um, mm-hmm. Michael watches as uh, you know they they take his previous cohort away and one woman approaches him to examine his face saying that you know perhaps he could have been a good person once uh, remark and Dominguez like yeah you know he probably had a mother uh, but he's not a good person anymore he's given um the same pill as the townspeople. We get some accordion music as he has walked down into the hole that Lunga previously dug for unknown purposes. Uh, and he is locked under the town as they seal the hole and bury him alive. A fate worse than death for his consequences, although it will probably result in death inevitably. Um, you know, if you get buried alive, that's kind of usually what the MO is there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But in the moment of the town coming together to bury uh, this particular assault and this hunter, uh, the movie ends. Uh, that is Bakuro. What a trip. So much going on. It's so cool. I really had no idea what to expect going into this movie. I'd never seen it before. I'd never really even heard of it. And I, there was a lot of points where I'm like, oh, is it going to take a sci-fi turn? Is it going to be more of a Western turn? And it somehow managed to pull like all of those elements together in a really interesting way. 
And it's a very brutal mm-hmm. story, but a very like effectively told one. To be to be honest, me neither, because um, <laughs> I was very lucky that I was able to see it um, at a film festival. Ooh. So I kind of walked in and I had no idea what to expect. Uh-huh. And I walked out and I was like, this was the best thing ever. <laughs> I love this. What's going on? I'm so confused. <laughs> Yeah, oh, man. <laughs> it's so hard to know what to make of it, but you know that when you stop watching it, you're like, that was cool. And I don't know how to explain mm. that it's cool, but I know that whatever I watched was awesome and, like, well right? made. The vibes were, like, really, really specific and really yeah. well, well developed. <laughs> so, even though you're a bit confused, you're like, I enjoyed that still. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, this is, this is making sense. Yeah, I like how much it hops between genres as well, too, because you get a lot of moments of, like, the crossover between, like, sci-fi and westerns crossover a lot. But this managed to blend the mm-hmm. two in a way that felt really, like, unique to the story this movie was telling. It didn't mm-hmm. just feel like they were like, let's pull some tropes. Like, just throw a, throw a UFO in there because we can, or, like, you know, have them walk into town at high noon because we can. It was, like, everything felt very intentional, and the pieces, like, fell into place to kind of cre- create the very unique tone that they did accomplish. Um Mm-hmm. And we've, we've sort of started to jump into this, but this is usually when we go into final thoughts on the movie. <laughs> Since we've, been, we've covered our, our plot. Uh, I do like to ask, like, is there a situation um, you might recommend our viewers watch this movie in? Uh, I don't think this is like group night movie necessarily, but what is what, it, what would you say who might mm. be interested in this film? <laughs> it is a unique Ooh. one. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, usually, actually, I recommend people that watch this movie not so much for... Uh, the, the kind of because there's a lot of symbolism in this movie mm-hmm. and like there's a lot of relation to history which I really really like yeah but I mostly recommend people watch it for longer because <laughs> just that was yes. um when I watched this movie for the first time I was like that is my favorite character of all time <laughs> I love this dude holy crap like I don't know why he just strikes you very much as like I don't know he's very he's this kind of like youthful yeah yeah, he's well. He he enters with like a mohawk, um, mohawk mullet, which already starts off in. A, mm-hmm. I'm a sucker for a crazy haircut, so already I was all in. <laughs> mm-hmm. He gets he gets the call for help, and people are like, you know, we're dying mm-hmm. in town. He takes a moment to change his outfit. <laughs> yes, into- he gets dressed for the occasion. <laughs> right. <laughs> This waist high trousers tucked into military boots and his little like little jacket and the rings and like the gold jewelry just (sighs) like he himself is such a character that like and he's aware that he's a character and so he like plays Mm -hmm. it up for the townspeople in a really and you just get the sense of like this guy is always stunting the fashion is always next level like the appearance of power is as important as his power actually is in person it's just immediately you understand mm-hmm. who this character is when they appear on screen so it's really exactly. fun to watch yeah, they're only in the like... last 30 minutes of the movie give or take i i think they're also quite unique in that you know they're completely gender fluid mm-hmm. i don't know if the subtitles you watch but they kind of switched from all kinds of pronouns for longer yeah and yeah it's just this character <laughs> this character yeah this movie has a lot of really great like just queer representation that's not like you know it's not the whole point of the movie it's just characters who are either you know uh gay or gender fluid just existing in the world and it's just taken by everyone around them as like that's just who they are and it's fine which is really refreshing to see because a lot of times when you get a movie that has great lgbtqi representation or like um gender representation it's 
explicitly pointed out and like they make a big deal out of it in the film and it was kind of nice to just be able to have it be part of the story and part of who the characters were and not have be the main focus mm-hmm. of the movie or detract from the story they're mm-hmm. trying to tell in any way um exactly yeah <laughs> it's nice to notice and be like oh yeah they're gay <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like oh like, she has a wife great <laughs> oh interesting <laughs> it was beautiful um yeah, but it's it's honestly it's a movie that I think you really do have to watch for yourself to figure out what you're going to make of it, which is a, a frustrating thing to say yeah. to a podcast audience who just <laughs> listen to us describe it word for word. But I do recommend that our listeners go and check this out for themselves. Um, it's a really well crafted story. It's it immediately pulls you in. It's a masterclass in like establishing who a character is from just looking at them for five seconds. And I, if you like like a weird genre bending action thrillery <laughs> just a very strange, strange movie, movie overall it's definitely worth a watch <laughs> mm-hmm. um i don't know if you want to talk about like themes sure <laughs> always <laughs> all of the notes that i Please. took were like okay themes <laughs> yeah hit me with them what you got <laughs> Okay, so basically, Baccarat is a weird Western. It takes elements of Western cinema, mixes them with Mm sci-fi, but specifically, a lot of it is an homage to Brazilian cinema. Mm -hmm. And, for example, the character of Lunga, he is a uh, cangasso, he's a cangacero, which is in Brazilian history and tradition, especially in film tradition, is like like a social bandit, as in like a bandit that fights for the people, kind of like a Robin Hood figure, Mm -hmm. but a little bit more violent. Um, and Baccaro, as we find out in the movie towards the end, is a Cangasso town, which is specifically a town that has historically housed and helped these bandits. And so, like, I kind of describe this movie as, like, the fuck around and find out movie. <laughs> because, because we, as the audience, are repeatedly kind of clued into the fact that you shouldn't fuck with these people. Mm-hmm. And so are the villains. Like, um, when they come into town, people are like, hey, you should go check out the history museum. Yeah. <laughs> you should go check out the history because <laughs> if they had gone they would have been like oh this is this is a cangasso town oh no <laughs> oh i see the problem now <laughs> yeah <laughs> but no they adamantly <laughs> refused to go see it and i think it, and they also don't show the audience the inside of the history museum until much later when mm-hmm. obviously terry enters and starts to put together where they <laughs> actually are <laughs> and he's like oh great <laughs> fantastic yeah, what else is there? Sorry, I'm pulling out my, my notes already. I, I'm like, great. I, I love it. I love when a guest has notes. <laughs> I actually did also research. I like went to like Brazilian history. Ooh. I was like, okay, great. Let me. <laughs> um, there was this guy called um, Antonio Consiguero, mm-hmm. which is Anthony the counselor. And he was actually like historically in the north of brazil where baccarat takes place um and he was also one of these like rebels who led towns and like um, who was very much anti-government anti-imperialism you know the spirit of that kind of culture is carried through in baccarat and that like this Mm -hmm. town in its essence is very anti-colonialist anti-imperialist like you know you've got people of all kinds of races and sexualities and genders just existing perfectly and then the villains in contrast are very like they self-segregate almost like there's there's people mm. with toxic masculinity there's you know uh, mm. them explicitly being like Joao and Maria who are white Brazilians from the south they're like well you're not really white mm. because you're not like us and right. it's like mm. 
Um, I don't know if that was another thing to be noticed, but the professions that the um, hunters have are also like very stereotypically associated with like white supremacy. Yeah, it was a lot of like um, prison correctional officer. Um, that was mm-hmm. the one that stuck out in my brain the most, but there was a few others. Uh, an HR person? There was a um a police officer. Yes. Terry's a police officer. Yes. <laughs> of course. <laughs> he goes on this speech where he was like, I shot that kid because like he looked violent. I thought he was carrying a gun, and it's very reminiscent of like you know, yeah. like stereotypical racist cough. <laughs> yeah, it's very much the it was totally self-defense when it was not justified. Mm-hmm. Even a little bit. <laughs> and uh, the prison corrections officer that doesn't like that, he's like, we only shoot criminals. <laughs> that's, that's also so stereotypical. Uh, oh man, like it's not, it's not subtle at all. Right. Like, it just hammers you over the head with it, but um, it's great. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of references to John Carpenter in this movie. I did catch, I think it's, is it the school or the hospital is like named John Cot- Carter? <laughs> Carpenter, mm-hmm. not Carter. Oh, God. Uh, but it's like the, the Portuguese version of his name. Yeah. Also, like, uh, do you remember in the scene just before the attack, like, where they're burying the two men that got shot at the farm, mm-hmm. there's this techno piece that's Night by John Carpenter, which oh. is, like, from his uh, album of unreleased music. <laughs> Whoa. Was the, and like, I director, remember... like, a big fan? Or is there, like, a thematic mm-hmm. John Carpenter link? Yeah, yeah, no, he's just a massive John Carpenter fan. I love that for them. <laughs> <And that's> like, <laughs> Incredible. He's like, I'm going to use that. <laughs> Perfect. Frankly, great. Exactly. If, if, you're, if you're a director, you get to use the music <laughs> fan of a new movie. That's how that works. <laughs> exactly. He's like, well, it doesn't really fit the scene, but you know what? Yeah. <laughs> I'm putting it in. Toss it in there. Why not? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Incredible. Um, the context of, like, the country, because, um, Baccarat is meant as like explicit political criticism mm-hmm. and I watched a couple of interviews with the two directors, Philo and Dornelles, uh, where they were like, yeah, this is this is like explicitly anti-Bolsonaro, um, you know, uh, anti-right, all that jazz. But um, the world that they build uh, of Brazil of that time mm-hmm. is like sort of a dystopian world mm-hmm. where you know you have public executions and then you have tony jr who's just blatantly corrupt yeah. and killing people and then uh, at the very start of the movie they mentioned that because um that brazil is split now between south and north mm-hmm. and that north of brazil they can't go to the rich south anymore because there's been like violence mm. so yes <laughs> restriction of movement uh no yep. water executions Yep. But people in Bakar are just vibing. <laughs> Nothing has changed up there. Yeah, it's the it's the normal <laughs> for them in this movie. It's very much like... Mm-hmm. I, I, I think you get that a lot when um, our MC friend is reading out the announcements in the beginning of the movie. And he's like, oh, road's closed for another week. It should be open again soon. Yep. And no one really seems to care or react or seem eager to worry about that getting back in. That's just a thing they've heard a thousand times at this point. Just the complete normal for them. <laughs> Oh, mm-hmm. um, the two hunters the, that get clocked first are called Will and Kate. Oh. And I don't know if that was just me. <laughs> nice. Specifically, that pairing of names is very interesting. Yes. Somewhat infamous pairing of names. <laughs> In terms of like, a movie that may be addressing mm-hmm. some themes of colonialism. And <laughs> Oof. 
It's not subtle. No. It's not subtle. It's not subtle. And I think if it was subtle, it wouldn't have worked. I think it only, it has to be overt for this movie to be pulled off because it's so weird. Mm -hmm. It's too easy to get distracted by like the glass phone that if it was subtle in what it was trying to convey, I think it would have been just like lost. So Mm. might as well name your two hunters, Will and (laughs) (laughs) And then get them murdered first. (laughs) They got shot. They're out. <laughs> R.I.P. Oh man, you gotta do it. You gotta do it. Um, <laughs> do it to him. Oh yeah, it's very difficult to like describe what this movie is about because there's just so much going mm-hmm. on. But um, when I watched it today, I was kind of like thinking about it from the very start, and there's very like a big emphasis on life and death mm-hmm. and how they're not opposites, but rather they exist together. So. You know, like the the very first scene where um, a motorcycle has hit a truck full of coffins and he's lying dead on the road and people are just kind of like being like, oh, yeah, I'll take two coffins Mm -hmm. or, um, oh, sure. You know, like, it's fine. We'll we'll, this is a good opportunity to stock up on coffins or whatever it is. There are a lot of coffins in this movie. (laughs) There's so many. They get dropped. And they're not very well made. No. Well, there's because there's just the coffin truck splinter. at the beginning. There's the coffin truck at the end, and then there's just like frequent image coffins popping up in the background all throughout. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, Tony Junior brings some. Yeah, his list of supplies: <laughs> food, books, coffins. Mm-hmm. And then the coffin is overflowing with water. Yeah, uh, Carmelita's coffin, which is like I don't know, symbol of life and death <laughs> together. All that chance. That one lost me a little bit, I won't lie. I was like, I get the idea that maybe she's seeing things, but I'm not sure what the water is supposed to symbolize coming out of this coffin. Uh, but it is more coffin imagery. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like, um, because for them, water is like a rare commodity mm-hmm. and it brings life. And which is why like when the water truck gets attacked, it's so um, ominous because mm-hmm. they don't get water any other way. But like Carmelita dying and yet life flowing from her almost Ah. uh, maybe in the form of her family perhaps i'm not sure i don't know (laughs) makes sense to me (laughs) and also drugs and also drugs yes i mean (laughs) sure (laughs) but let's go with the life thing i think that's a nice better interpretation of yeah it's a little bit more optimistic a little bit more thematically relevant (laughs) Mm -hmm. but yeah lots of uh Lots of blood and liquids and all that jazz yeah. in this movie. So much. Yeah. <laughs> I think your man getting his head blown up by the naked old man. I only ever saw that imagery in Midsommar and both times like in here and in Midsommar. It's just so jarring and unpleasant to see that. But it's also kind of funny. Yeah. Because it's so weird. It's again taking it to like such an extreme that it almost loops around to being humorous because it's like how I can't imagine right. seeing this in reality. So seeing it on film, I'm like, how do I take this? Mm. Can I laugh? Exactly. <laughs> it just, it looks like a watermelon. You're like, I don't think it would look like that in real life. No. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> but yeah. So much of the violence in this movie is like, what? Yeah, the violence never feels like it's, um, well, it feels violent. It never feels like it's, looking for the right word, it's not brutal. Mm. It's almost overdramatic. Yeah, it, it it's like stage violence almost, except because it's a film mm. and they have special effects, it can be more explicit. It just feels like a performance mm. of violence more so than it does like 
like a Breaking Bad scene almost would, where it's like this is supposed to be like the violence mm-hmm. is the main point. Here it feels like almost set dressing for what's actually mm-hmm. happening, which is what the characters are doing. If that made any yeah, sense to like- our listeners. <laughs> it looped around to a point. It's like thematic rather yeah. than physically there. Yeah, which kind of puts it in a weird space of like maybe you can laugh at parts of this. Um, weirdly enough, mm-hmm. like um, Kingsman almost does something similar with violence where it's like we're doing something comical with this and how over the top it often is or how explicit some of what we're showing is where it kind of just loops around Mm -hmm. to being like funny rather than brutal although you know it's still explicit violence but it's not emotionally brutal (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like it's almost like um not gratuitous but when the hunters start getting killed it's very cathartic the viewer yeah you're kind of like, yeah, get it. And like when Lunga goes ham and takes the machete and just goes at it, you're like, cool. <laughs> yeah, I think it helps too that red is always like a, a key accent color in any given scene because a lot of the background shots are very mm-hmm. like neutrals and greens. and But like the suitcase at the beginning is red and there's a lot of like shots of just like specific red elements that pop up whenever there's something super thematic happening and blood is very red and they like colored it so that it's super saturated. So it's a whole little mm-hmm. through line aesthetically, but then also it really makes you be like, man, that's very, it's very red blood. <laughs> like comically <laughs> red. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I don't, I don't think it's that colored real life. No. It looks like an apple. I've never seen it like yeah. It's like, oh, man. Oh, that's an interesting point about the suitcase being red. I've never connected that. Oh, I but it. I guess like, I guess that maybe ties into like the life and death mm-hmm. existing simultaneously yeah especially because the suitcase contains like the vaccines and medicine too that Teresa brings back with her so it's all that that duality is like Mm -hmm. really prevalent just in every every shot what else is red there was I think something in the um like general store that was red but I think it was just like in the background like some of the product or something um it pops up as like an accent color uh in the school maybe (laughs) oh no I'm like do I need to scrub through the film to look for screenshots of red (laughs) Now the Twitter. I do know that in the general story, they just have like um, not so much dead animals, but like just like That's the what full leg. Yeah, animal, it was the, like um, the yeah. yeah, like the full just like you know meat for sale essentially, just like the full animals hanging mm-hmm. up. Um, and it just feels so jarring, but at the same time, you're like, yeah, yeah. that's that's how it would be. That's normal. <laughs> it's a weird movie, and there's a lot happening. You got any any more notes? Yeah. Ooh. Yes. Ooh. I've got so many. Oh my god. <laughs> I love it. (laughs) I watched a couple of interviews with the directors Mm -hmm. just to kind of get a hang on what this movie is about, according to them. And they said that this movie is primarily about power. Mm. And it's also like a war film. I'm not sure about that second war film. I kind of get it. Uh, But the power one explains a lot Mm -hmm. about it. Like it's about people who have power, who don't, who think they have power. And then ultimately... You know, it's uh, Baccarat, the town itself, is the one with the most power right. rather than any individual person. Yeah. <laughs> power. Yeah, I agree. I think the power part does come through. And, like, the, the, the balance of power and how it shifts throughout the film, like, directly mm-hmm. directs how you feel about any given moment. But I, I do think the war movie bit might get a little bit lost. <laughs> I, it certainly is a conflict. Yeah. I don't know if I would describe the film as being about war, at least the interpretation that I got after watching it. Um, I've only seen it the one time for this podcast. But it's certainly, like, while conflict is central, I don't know how much of the themes of, like, again, the word mm-hmm. war <laughs> I would pick up. Yeah. 
what is a synonym for war that is in conflict? I guess you can kind of expound it to like, yeah, oh, sorry, expound it to the theme of colonialism yeah. and how maybe, you know, war is involved in that, but it's a very kind of sideways mm-hmm. way of linking it to the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it depends on how much I, you title I really, Sorry. No, but um, I really like watching how, yeah, the balance of power shifts mm-hmm. and specifically there's like these two moments where... Uh, Marie and Kuao, the the bikers from the very start, they appear very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. And then they go back to the compound and immediately they have lost all their power. Mm. And it's very, very obvious. Yeah. And then uh, the hunters come in and they're the ones with the most power. And then towards the end, again, they just totally lose Mm. it. And then, you know, Michael is left like essentially begging for his life or, you know, screaming at... uh, Tony Jr. being like, no, 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 yeah. no. And just, yeah, mm-hmm. just the, the flow of that is very jarring. Yeah, it feels like everyone who they set up is having a lot of power at the beginning has swapped, and by the end, they're the most powerful ones, and vice versa. Like, Tony Jr. is also set up as this, like, powerful figure. He's a politician. Mm-hmm. He's authority. Um, and by the end, he's just a man in a suit that they're going to kick out of town on a donkey. Uh, <laughs> Without a suit. Without a suit. <laughs> you lose the suit, you lose the just power. Everyone underwear. knows that that's the universal truth. <laughs> that's why it's called a power suit (laughs) it's explicit like the imagery of like uh kicking him out on an ass (laughs) it's the the tony jr like getting kicked out of town on the donkey with the mc in the background is one of my favorite scenes in the movie honestly it's you're just like okay all of the most like (laughs) surreal elements of the movie like congeal in that one moment (laughs) Mm-hmm. The imagery thematically borrows from the cinema of the 60s and 70s down to the sound. Mm. And I remember because I was obsessed with this movie <laughs> and I was, when I was in film school, I was doing a lot of like sound recording and sound design mm-hmm. specifically. That was kind of like my area of specialism. And I was desperate to include Baccarat somehow <laughs> in my work. And so <laughs> I was like, I need to. Mm. Um, but I analyzed the sound. And they actually overlay it with um, a little bit of a, not so much like a record scratch, but like a little bit of fuzz mm. to make it sound as if it was recorded on these old microphones. Mm-hmm. And to kind of, um, it's this contrast of like, you know, this movie is borrowing so much from the past, but it's about the future. And I've never really seen a sci-fi movie do that, which was yeah. very interesting. <laughs> very slick. I love it when people try to like recreate some older sound. I, I also did a lot of sound recording when I was in college, so mood. Uh, <laughs> but uh, oh man, the shoulder. Did you ever boom? Oh, absolutely. You got to boom. You you can't call yourself a soundproof person shoulders. if you haven't boomed. It's the rite of passage. You got to stand in that like modified T pose for take after take. <laughs> And I'm rather short too, so I was always on an apple box, like up top, trying to get above our actors. <laughs> yeah, like, stretching out as fully, fully up, just like extended the boom arm as far as it would go, holding it at the very end, just like please don't dip, please don't dip. Shaking. I um I boomed once for a shot where we were doing like a um a bike chasing a car, and the shot was from the back of the van, like the trunk of the car, and. Honestly, we didn't use any of the sound from that scene that I recorded, but I was sitting in the back of the car with the, the camera, uh, the first first cam op, and I had the boomstick, like, holding it out the back of the moving vehicle, trying to get bike wheel sound and stay out of the shot. Oh, my God. It was definitely um, a sketchy college film shoot. <laughs> it was really fun, too. <laughs> I 
Oh no, I can imagine. Oh my god. Did you ever um did you ever have to like boom in close quarters? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. that's that's what the benefits of like being a short boom up come mm-hmm. in. You just kinda squeeze yourself in with like, all of your stuff and just Yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> it's fun. And then they just kinda forget that you're there, so you start hearing gossip. Oh yeah. Nothing flawless. being a sound person on set is the best uh position because you get to know everyone's business. <laughs> People always mm-hmm. forgot that mics are hot, and then they just start talking, and you're like, I know everything. <laughs> I'm the keeper of the secrets. You think it's the producers, but it's me. <laughs> um, you just very quietly turn the knob on and be like, turn mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Who's doing what? Um, yes, but this is all to say I really enjoy when uh, they use techniques to kind of recreate that older sound or to recreate a specific microphone, because it's a little detail, and you don't pick up on it necessarily mm-hmm. actively when you're watching um, but it goes towards just making that like dissonance between the past and yeah. the future work so well. Uh, and I, you love to hear it. <laughs> I'd say you love to see it, mm-hmm. but that wouldn't be accurate. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and it's just, yeah, it's the lovely details that just suck mm-hmm. you deeper into the world of the movie. It just feels like very carefully crafted and yeah. intentional in like every decision it's making. It doesn't feel like stuff are just done for the sake mm-hmm. of doing things, which is uh, mm-hmm. really nice. <laughs> you, you want your movies to be intentional. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess if they're as kind of like filled with symbols as Baccarat, mm-hmm. you want the audience to be like, okay, everything's intentional. Therefore, what I'm seeing right now, that was intentional. So it means something. Because... Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think sometimes there's movies where you're like oh this could be symbolism and it turns out to be just, just completely nonsense. accidental yeah. and you're like great it's like why is that vase blue it's like it doesn't matter but here the suitcase being red does matter it all the, the difference is intention <laughs> mm-hmm. oh the interaction of the past and future sorry i have i have one final yes, note please. which is um when michael and the other hunters are walking into town and uh, they spot a pair of cars that were mm-hmm. like super old and shot up. And the first time we actually see those cars was when um, Pakoch is driving the two dead men to Wunga's hideout. And then they pass those cars. Mm. And then you find out later on that these cars are like, yeah, police cars. They're been there ages and ages. And it's another sign that like, don't fuck around <laughs> with this town because it's a Kangaso town. Yeah. But of course they ignore it. And they're like, oh, who cares? They're just old cars. And it's like, you're stuck here. You're not learning from history. Yeah. Learn from history, damn it. <laughs> like, um, again, yeah, just to have a movie set in the future, but that is so deeply entrenched mm-hmm. in its own past. And like, the past is so important. I love history, so that was really gratifying <laughs> to see. <laughs> just, yeah. And they pulled it off really well, too. I don't know how to explain yeah, it. Yeah, the, the elements in the museum and the cars and everything, it just like, again... Mm-hmm intentional decisions that really paid off uh and even if you don't know what realize on first viewing when you connect to the dots it's like okay everything makes sense and i guess it also tells like this story of like this this has been happening mm-hmm. again and again and again like this is a pattern and the people who keep doing bad stuff to baccarat never seem to learn yep. and it's just <laughs> like baccarat is always going to be fine there's a there's a thing that the teacher says it's like baccarat has always been on the map where you're also kind of like mm, interesting <laughs> No, they're gonna be fine. They're gonna be okay. You can't knock Bakuro off the map, even if you knocked him off the digital ones, because they've got their own map that they pull down in front of the chalkboard. It's a whole like design choice. Exactly. <laughs> fuck around and find fuck out. Fuck around. And, uh, that's sort of the theme I think that we should end on is fuck around and find out being the big takeaway. 
There's a yeah. lot going on in this movie. It's absolutely worth a watch, but I think we've covered a lot of it. So before we say goodbye on this podcast here, uh, Trashling, where can our listeners find you if they want more of that hard-hitting analysis and just fun stuff? I have a TikTok, which is tiktok.com slash at Trashling. And I also have a YouTube, which is youtube.com slash C slash Trashling. So <laughs> I am found there. But if you would like film analysis specifically, I would recommend the YouTube and not so much the TikTok. <laughs> Amazing. The TikTok is good for like random funny things. I do. I I enjoy your TikTok quite a bit. You have shown up on my For You page page many (laughs) times, which is probably how we ended up here. But But, uh, both of those will be linked in the show notes below. Yes. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me. This has been a delight. It's been fun to talk about a movie I hadn't seen before. And I'm going to go try and. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. No, you're good. I'm just going to go try and find my cat because I can hear her making weird noises. But we will catch all of you on a future episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Movie Struck. We'll be back on May 16th with another thrilling installment. Uh, but if you have any questions, comments, or concerns before then, feel free to email us at moviestruckpod at gmail.com. As mentioned in the intro, this week we have an exciting new announcement. Movie Struck has a Patreon and Discord. If you're interested in connecting with the wider community and getting access to some fun bonus content like monthly patron-selected movie reviews, creator AMAs, little promos of episodes to come, consider becoming a patron. It goes a long way to helping support the podcast and uh, helping make more fun, exciting content for you guys. Uh, If you're interested in either of those things, there are links in the show notes below. And there are also links in the show notes below to our wonderful guest Trashlings content on TikTok, YouTube, and beyond. Be sure to check out those links in the show notes below. And until next week, happy watching.